Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Manasseh Cutler was the pastor of a small village church in Ipswich, Massachusetts, uh, back in the early or rather late 1700s. Uh, I recently read about him in a new best-selling book called The Pioneers. Uh, Manasseh went to the Continental Congress in 1787 to ask for a land grant. He wanted to help settle the territory west of the Ohio River and east of the Mississippi. He wanted to be a pioneer. Uh, He was also a really, really smart guy. He had three doctorates. He had a doctorate in divinity, in law, and in medicine. Uh, But his favorite pastime was the study of of science. He was a botanist. Uh, He he wrote a treatise, a book, on all the flora of New England, the surrounding area where he lived. 300 species of flora described in detail in this book. He was a meteorologist. He was an astronomer. And the reason I mentioned Manasseh Cutler is just to make the point that back in his day, it was totally acceptable to be a pastor and a scientist, okay, to be someone devoted to the study of the Bible and devoted to the study of the natural world. In fact, historically, some of the most famous groundbreaking scientists in history have been Christ followers. Clayton mentioned some of these dudes by name last week. You got Galileo, you know, with his telescope confirming Copernicus's theory that the earth is the center of things and the planets revolve around it, not the other way around. Or Mr. Kepler with his laws of planetary uh, motion. Sir Isaac Newton, who's sitting under the apple tree one day and gets bonked on the head and leads him to the discovery, the study of gravity. Uh, uh, the, the, the father of modern, of modern uh, electricity, Faraday. And it's not just scientists from ages past, it's, it's current science, scientists as well who have a robust faith in Jesus even as they study the natural world. I think of Francis Collins. Uh, Collins is a geneticist, the guy who was uh, the head of the Human Genome Project, unraveling the mysteries of DNA. Collins came to faith in Christ as an adult. He was a doctor on the floor of a hospital. He watched people die, and he was intrigued by the fact that Christ followers died with a sense of peace and hope, and he didn't have that peace and hope in his own heart, and he wanted to find out where, where does it come from, and it led him to a relationship with Christ. And by the way, we one of the three books that Clayton and I are promoting during this uh, series is uh, a book by Francis Collins called The Language of God, a best-selling book several years ago in which he tells his story of coming to faith. Would highly recommend it. Now, it's unfortunate today that we often hear the Christian faith and science pitted against each other. Yes, some scientists vehemently oppose any notion of God, but did you know that over 60% of Nobel Prize winners in the last century, the 20th century, so between 1901 and 2000, over 60% were Christ followers. Of course, some of the blame for the apparent battle between Christianity and science is due to the fact that some people of faith see scientists as the enemy. You know, especially scientists who hold views about creation that seem to be in opposition to the Bible. And that's my topic today. 
You know, I want to address the question, does the Bible's creation account recorded in Genesis 1, and by the way, you want to start looking for Genesis 1, and that's where we're going to land today. It's real easy to find. Just open the front cover of your Bible. Okay, Genesis 1. Does the Bible's creation account recorded in Genesis 1, does it conflict with modern science? Now, here's my answer. It all depends. Okay, next question. Seriously, whether or not the Bible's creation account recorded in Genesis 1 conflicts with science depends on how Genesis 1 is interpreted. Now, there are three basic interpretations that are held by Christian Bible scholars. And I emphasize Christian here. I want you to know I'm not using the word in a watered-down sort of way. I'm talking about people who are devoted followers of Jesus Christ and who believe that the Bible is God's holy word. So three basic interpretations of Genesis 1. I'm going to give give them to you quickly by way of introduction, and then we're going to go back and cover them one at a time in greater detail. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so buckle your seatbelt, okay? And keep your ears open, because you're going to hear some things that you might think you disagree with, but make sure that, that you've heard accurately what it is I'm saying. Three basic interpretations of Genesis 1. The first interpretation I'm going to call the 24-hour day interpretation. And the guys who hold this position, and by the way, I'm going to use guys uh, throughout this morning as Midwestern slang. It means men and women. Okay, so when I say guys, I'm not leaving uh, women scientists or women theologians out, out of the picture at all. It's just easier to say guys than to keep saying the people who hold this position. So guys, okay? So the 24-hour guys believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days, literal days, which is why th- this interpretation is sometimes referred to as the literal interpretation of Genesis 1. So God created the world in, in a week. Uh, not only did he create it in a week, he, he created, created it a relatively short time ago. So somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago, which is why this view is also called, on occasion, the young earth position. So you've got the 24-hour day, literal, young earth interpretation. You with me so far? Let's take a look at Genesis 1 and let me read the opening verses of the Bible to you. Okay, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We're going to stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe that this is the word of the Lord. Okay, on the first day, according to what we just read, God made the light. If we kept reading on the second day, uh, God made the sky and water. On the third day, he made dry land and vegetation. On the fourth day, he made the sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, he made the birds and the fish. And on the sixth day, he made animals and and, uh, humans. So each of these six days... According to the literal young earth interpretation, were 24-hour days. Second interpretation, okay, Bible-believing scientists and theologians. Second interpretation, the day-age, day-age interpretation. Scholars who hold this view believe that the word day 
in Genesis chapter 1 doesn't refer to a 24-hour day. It refers to a long period of time. It refers to an age. Okay, if I say to you today, back in the day, I used to have long hair. Okay, you know what I'm, you're laughing, some of you. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that there was a 24-hour period when I had long hair. You know, there, there was an era in my life, specifically my college years, when my hair was quite long, as hard as it may be to imagine that today. So the day-age interpretation of Genesis 1 holds that God created the earth over six long periods of time, six ages. Third interpretation, the evolutionary creation interpretation. Some of you are saying, isn't that an oxymoron, evolutionary creation? Keep listening, okay? P people who hold this view, Christ followers who hold this view, believe that Genesis 1 was not intended by God to be read as a scientific description of creation. It's more like a poem. Okay? It's a song, if you would, in praise of the God who made everything. It's a, it's a literary masterpiece. So don't read the word day literally. Read the word day figuratively. Now, this doesn't mean, okay, hear me, this doesn't mean that Genesis 1 isn't true. Of course, it's true. God created the heavens and the earth. But G Genesis 1 is a poem about creation, not a science te textbook. Okay, three interpretations, all held by Christian, by evangelical Bible-believing scholars. Y'all with me so far? Turn to the person next to you and say, are you with him so far? Okay. Okay, I say, said one line here, not, not chit-chat, all right? Yeah. Let's take a closer look at the details of each interpretation. So number one, might help if you get your outline out to help you follow along, jot down thoughts as we go. The 24-hour day interpretation, several insights. Uh, first of all, this view reflects the normal use of the word day in Scripture. When we see the word day in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, it usually refers to a 24-hour day. Now, it's true that yom can occasionally refer to a longer period of time, to an age, but that's not how the word is most frequently used. And, and besides that, go back to the verses I just read. The end of verse 5 says, there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening and morning. Sounds like a reference to a 24-hour day, doesn't it? I mean, ages don't have evenings and mornings. Se second insight from the 24-hour day position. It exalts God's word over science. I mean, if the, if the Bible is God's word, and that's what we believe around Christ Community Church, and the Bible says that God created the world in six days, then God created the world in six days, even if scientists today say it took him 4.5 billion years to do it. I mean, you're going to believe God's word, or you're going to believe scientists. I mean, hasn't science been embarrassingly wrong on occasion? Uh-huh. I mean, haven't many dearly held theories been corrected or updated over time? Yep. So let's not let science influence our interpretation of the Bible, right? Let me say that again. Let's not let science influence our interpretation of the Bible. Now, before you say right, let me push back on that for a moment. 
What should we do with verses like Malachi 1, verse 11, where God says, my name will be great among the nation from where the sun rises to where it sets? Okay, let's not let science influence our reading of Malachi 1, verse verse 11. What does this verse say about the sun? Forget everything you've learned from science. What does Malachi 1, 11 teach about the sun? The sun moves. The sun rises, the sun sets while the earth remains still. Is this correct? Oh, somebody needs to go back to science class. (laughs) How do you know it's not correct? You know it's not, not correct because in 1543, you know, a dude by the name of Copernicus... And oppose this theory that it works just the, the, the opposite, that the sun stands still and the planets revolve around the sun. Now, now, does that mean that Malachi 1 verse 11 got it wrong? No, Malachi 1 verse 11 is figurative. It's, it's a poetic, not a scientific description of what the sun does. It's, it's a common way to say that the sun rises, the sun, sun sets. Turn on the news today, watch the weather report. The meteorologist will say, sunrise tomorrow is at 645. It's not very scientific, but it's a figurative way of speaking of it. So evidently, science has influenced our interpretation of Malachi 1 verse 11. It's taught us, science has taught us, that the sun is not rising and setting literally. This is a figurative, not a literal description. Okay, what about the word day in Genesis 1? Is it figurative or is it literal? Science would suggest it's figurative. That it took 4.5 billion years for the earth as we know it to be formed. So so we're not exalting science above God's word. No, but on occasion, science may help us how to uh, know how to interpret, how to understand a passage of scripture. You get it? Good. Third insight from this 24-hour day group. It explains the entrance of death into the world. So why do things die in this world? Okay, the 24-hour guys say, well, that's like theology 101. It's pretty simple. Uh, Death is the penalty for sin. When Adam and Eve, the the first humans, when they, they disobeyed God, when they disconnected from the one who is the giver of life, you've heard me describe this before, You know, they introduced death to the planet. They disconnected from life, death. That's a good answer. Genesis 2, verse 17 describes it this way. It says, uh, God placed Adam in a virtual paradise in the Garden of Eden, and he said to Adam, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But you probably know how the story goes. Adam disobeyed God. Adam sinned. The penalty was death. So before Adam, no death. After Adam, death. You following this? Okay, here's the argument of the 24-hour guys. You know, if the world existed for billions of years, like modern scientists say, if it existed for billions of years before man arrived on the scene, and all that time plants and animals were living and dying, I mean, dinosaurs were duking it out with each other and, and, and so on, how do you explain all that death when Adam wasn't around yet to introduce the world to death through his sin? Did I lose anybody there? You know, the, the earth had to be created in, in, in a week's time, so Adam could arrive by the end of the week and introduce death to the world so things would be living and, and dying. 
So is this an airtight theological argument for the 24-hour day position? Not really, say theologians. I mean, the Bible tells us that Adam's sin introduced death to humans, but it never specifically says that Adam's sin introduced, introduced death to plants and animals. Go back to Genesis 2, 17 that I quoted a moment ago. God tells Adam, when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. You, Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all, what? People. So, So scientists claim that plants and animals were dying for billions of years before humans arrived on the scene does not contradict the Bible. I mean, it's it's possible for non-human living things to to experience death as a regular occurrence long before Adam showed up. Fourth insight from the 24-hour day group. It supports the Sabbath commandment to rest on the seventh day. Ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Okay, commandment number four says that one day a week needs to be set aside for rest and for worship, for focusing on on God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Why? Well, it says because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So the 24-hour people say, hey, if you throw out God's creation in six 24-hour days, you might as well throw out commandment number four. It doesn't make any sense. Now, the other two positions that we're going to look at today say, well, wait a minute, it does make sense. Because what it's teaching us is a pattern. You work for six and you take off one. doesn't matter whether it's six days or six ages or if it's just a figurative description of how God did it. We get the point. The point is you work hard and then you rest and you worship. So that's the 24-hour day interpretation along with some of the, the pushbacks. Here's the second possible interpretation held by Christ followers who believe the Bible is God's word. The day-age interpretation. Several insights from this interpretation. First, it interprets the, the word day in a biblically legitimate way. So even though the meaning of day in the Bible is often a a, a 24-hour period, the word day can also on occasion refer to a long period of time. Now, I could cite you uh, many verses where this is the case. Let me give you just one example. This is from Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. You could jot it down and look at it later if you'd like. It says, in that day, okay, there's our word day, in that day, the branch of the Lord it's capitalized because it's, it's a person's name. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Okay, in that day, what day are we talking about? Well, theologians say this is the millennial age at the end of history when Jesus, he's the branch of the Lord, when Jesus returns and sets up a thousand-year reign on the current planet before he creates a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so day here is not a 24-hour, it's not, his reign isn't limited to 24 hours, it's an age, a millennial age. So so the word day in Genesis 1 could quite possibly be referring to the ages, the six ages over which God created the planet. Okay, this is the day-age interpretation. And the day-age people, 
love to needle the 24-hour creation people. They say, really, 24-hour days? Okay, explain some things. Like, how is it that vegetation is created on day three and the sun is created on day four? Like, don't you need the sun to keep the vegetation alive? And, and what about all the stuff that gets done on these supposedly uh, 24-hour days? Really? Okay? So on day three, when the vegetation is, is created, we also read that it reproduces. So it's already reproducing in a 24-hour spot. And what about day six? On day six, God creates animals. Then God creates man. Then man, Adam, names all the animals... And, and then Adam gets so lonely that God says, oh, this is not good for man to be alone, so he creates Eve. And when Adam sees Eve, you know the first words out of his mouth in, in the original Hebrew are, at last. Well, dude, you've only been waiting 24 hours. <laughs> How is this at last stuff? That's an awful, the day age guys say, that's an awful lot to get done in a 24-hour period. Second insight. Oh, by the way, Day-age people also like to quote 2 Peter 3, verse 8, which says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Okay, here's a second insight from the day-age people. They, uh, they believe it provides evidence from Scripture and science that the earth is very, very old, their interpretation. So Habakkuk 3, verse 6 says, and yes, there is a book in the Bible called Habakkuk, it says that God stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the mountains, the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. Now, ancient mountains, age-old hills, Bible scholars tell us that the Hebrew expressions here could just as easily be translated eternal mountains and everlasting hills. Doesn't that make the earth sound really, really old? I mean, not, not like 10,000 years old as the 24-hour day uh, people say, but more like billions of years old, as modern scientists say. So the day-age guys, they agree with the scientists who say that the earth is around 4.5 billion years old. There is no conflict between the Bible and science on this issue if the word day in Genesis 1 refers to an age. Of course, let me quickly add, there is still the conflict over who or what created the world to begin with. Because unlike the scientists, the Dage A guys believe it was God. But they believe that God took a long time to do it. And that God, God used some natural processes to get the job done. You following this? Now, I want to go back to the 24-hour guys for just a minute here. How do they explain away the science that proves that the earth is billions of years old? Okay, so this is just an aside, and there are three basic arguments the 24-hour guys use. Uh, one is they say that the system for dating the age of the earth is seriously flawed. I mean, radiometric dating, they say, is a joke. Now, what's interesting, somewhat ironic here, is that the scientists who invented radiometric dating were mostly Christ followers. In fact, some of them from Wheaton College, a very conservative evangelical school near here. And, and, and these geologists would also tell you that radiometric dating is by no means the only way that scientists use to measure the age of the earth. There are several different ways that work together. 
So a second argument that's used is that Noah's flood, the worldwide flood, was so catastrophic that it just rearranged things in a way to make the, the world look old. It took uh, fossils, took sea animals from the bottom of the ocean and ended up depositing them on the top of mountains, and that's why we find the fossils there and rearrange the strata and so on. But I've, you know, I've spoken to a couple friends of mine, Christian geologists, who say, They don't know a single Christian geologist who believes that it was the flood that created all that rearrangement and and whatnot. Still another argument that the 24-hour guys use is they say, well, God just created the earth with the appearance of age. I mean, stop to think about it. You know, Adam, when he creates Adam, he doesn't create a little baby that grows into a man. When God creates trees, he doesn't create little seedlings that eventually grow to be trees. No, he creates full-grown people, full-grown trees. Maybe he created an earth with age built in. But the objection to this, the other other interpretations say, you know, doesn't that make God a little deceptive? I mean, it's one thing to create the world with, with age built in, but to do it in a sneaky way by putting fossils where they're not supposed to be and whatever, you know, makes God look like, uh, like he's trying to deceive us, mislead us. No, the day-age people say the world looks old to scientists because it is old. And it's okay for it to be old. It doesn't conflict with Genesis 1. Here's a third insight from the day-age people. Their view affirms that God speaks through both Scripture and his creation. Now, we know that God speaks to us through Scripture. Okay, the day-age guys say he also speaks to us through his creation. It's common uh, for people to refer to the Bible as God's small book and creation as God's big book. Two books. God's written two books. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. Creation teaches us about God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the day-age guys want us to pay attention to both Scripture and creation. You know, study the Bible, do good theology, but study creation, do good science. You know, is there a way to reconcile Genesis chapter 1 with modern science when it comes to the age of the world? The 24-hour day guys say, no, no reconciliation. We believe God did it in six days and not, not very long ago, young earth. No reconciliation possible, the scientists say, 4.5 billion years. The day-age people say, yes. Reconciliation is possible because the days of Genesis 1 could legitimately be be interpreted as six ages, meaning that God took a long, long time to form the world just as science teaches. And the day-age guys would add, why pick a fight with science if you don't have to have a fight? Okay, why why pick a... I mean, there are things that we as Bible-believing Christians, we're going to disagree with our culture on, and we're going to wrestle them to the ground. But why pick a fight when you don't need one? Remember what happened to the church in the age of Galileo? Okay, Galileo comes along with his telescope and he says the sun is the center uh, you know, of things just like Copernicus said and the earth revolves around it. And the church said, heresy. Why? 
Well, because Psalm 105, verse 4, says the, the, the Lord has set the, the earth on its foundations. It will never be moved. And so we took it literally. And, of course, we came to find out that that's not a literal description of the earth standing still. It's a figurative description of the earth's stability. The earth is firm. We ended up with egg on our face in the day age people say, well, you know, why pick a fight with scientists when you don't have to have a fight? Number three, third interpretation, held by Bible-believing scientists and theologians, the evolutionary creation interpretation. A couple of insights. Most of this position has been covered in one way or another as I have outlined the other two positions. First insight, this view respects the poetic feel and thematic arrangement of Genesis 1. So the evolutionary creation guys say that Genesis 1 wasn't intended to be a scientific description of how God made the heavens and the earth or how long it took God to do it. It's just a very, very colorful and praiseful affirmation of God and his handiwork. Dr. Edward Young, a very conservative Hebrew scholar, explains that Genesis 1 was written in, and I quote, exalted semi-poetic language. Exalted semi-poetical language. You know, for example, if you go back and you look at Genesis 1, you know, 10 times, 10 times we read in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, And God said, 10 times we read, let there be, let there be, let there be. Seven times we read, and it was so, and it was so, and it was. Now, do these repeating refrains sound more like a science textbook or like a well-crafted poem? And, and, And consider how the six days of creation are arranged into two corresponding columns of three days each. I want to chart this out. I'm going to put it up on the on the screen. And you could follow along in your Bible if you got your Bible open to Genesis 1. What happens on creation day number 1, verses 3 to 5? You get light and darkness, light separated from darkness. Day 2, verses 6 through 8, you get sky separated from water, sky and water. Day 3, you get dry ground and vegetation. Okay, let's start a second column. Okay, day 4, verses 14 to 19, you got lights in the sky. So day four kind of corresponds to day one where the light is separated from the darkness. Day five, you get birds and fish, which make their home where? Birds in the sky, fish in the water corresponds to day two. And day six, verses 24 to 27, animals and humans are made who live on the ground and eat the vegetation described in day three. You see the correspondence between these two columns? It's almost like a well-crafted poem. Now, let me quickly clarify something here because some of you are starting to get upset with me. Okay, because you're wondering, well, is Jim suggesting that Genesis 1 is not true? It's just a poem? I never suggested it's not true. A poem can make a true statement, right? A poem can make a true statement even if it uses figurative language, not literal language, to do so. Let me use an analogy here from another portion of Scripture. You don't have to turn, but in Judges chapter 4, we read a description of a major battle that took place between ancient Israel and the army of a wicked general by the name of Sisera. 
Israel kicked butt, they came out on on top, and so uh, the story is very literally recorded in Judges chapter 4, in a historical account. In chapter 5, we read a poem, a song, if you would, that was written about Israel's victory. And in Judges 5, verse 20, we read that the stars came to Israel's defense, that the stars came down from heaven and fought against Sisera and his army. Now, what are we to believe? Are we to take that literally? Judges chapter 5, are we to to imagine in our minds stars dropping out of the sky and maybe holding swords or spears or whatever and taking on... No, of course not. Judges 5 is a figurative description. Does that mean the event didn't happen? No, it did. It's described historically in chapter 4. It's described figuratively in a poem in chapter 5. You following this? You know, people often ask me the question, do you take the Bible literally? And I say, well, it depends. I take the literal passages literally, and I take the figurative passages figuratively. I mean, when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I'm the gate for the sheep, I don't take that literally. I don't picture Jesus as a wooden gate that opens and closes, letting sheep in and out of a fold. What what, what I understand Jesus telling me figuratively, something that's very true, is that he's the way into a relationship with God. You've got to enter through him. You say, okay, but what about the resurrection then? In in the Bible, are are, are we to say, well, science says there are no resurrections, so we don't believe. That's just figurative. No, because when I read about the resurrection in Luke's gospel, Luke writes it all out as an historian, as an investigative journalist. You read the opening verses of Luke's gospel, and he says, I'm checking this out with eyewitnesses. I'm going to give you a true account of exactly what happens. So it's written as literal history, and so I take it as literal history. Somebody challenged me last night in the Welcome Center. They said, well, then you, you know, whatever you don't like in the Bible, you just call figurative and dismiss it. Oh, you didn't hear what I said. That's what you come away with. You know, you're, you're not allowed to pick and choose. You, you have to look at the genre of, of literature, and even when it's figurative, it's making a true statement. It's making a true statement. So Genesis 1, according to the evolutionary creation interpretation, has a poetic feel to it. It's telling us the truth. God created the heavens and the earth, but it's doing it with figurative language. Second insight. Evolutionary creation resolves much of the tension between Genesis 1 and contemporary science. Okay, if Genesis 1 is not intended to tell us how God created the world or how long God took to create the world, then we can be more welcoming to what science says about the details, the how, of the Earth's formation. We don't even have to rule out evolution. You say, what? Did Pastor Jim just say that evolution is okay? Now, if you you were raised in conservative church circles as I was, evolution was a dirty word. I mean, evolution rated right up there with, with witchcraft and blasphemy, okay? So creation and evolution don't mix. But here's a distinction I need to make between... Now listen, follow this carefully. We need to make a distinction between evolution as a philosophical system, as a worldview, and evolution as a biological process. So evolution as a philosophical system, as a worldview, denies the existence of God. 
says the world evolved through, you know, through a very blind and random, unguided process. And when it talks about humans, you know, made in the image of God, that's a bunch of baloney. There's no God in whose image we can be made. So evolution as a philosophical system is totally incompatible with the Bible. Did you hear me say that? Evolution as a philosophical system is totally incompatible with the Bible. But evolution as, as a biological process is a completely different matter. You know, Francis Collins, the scientist I mentioned to you earlier who headed up the Human Genome Project, you know, this, this incredible geneticist who helped unravel the mysteries of DNA is a passionate follower of Jesus, is a devout believer in the Bible as God's word. But Dr. Collins believes, as many scientists who are Christ followers believe, that God used the biological process of evolution to create the world in which we live. And that's a biblically acceptable viewpoint if we're willing to look at Genesis 1, not as a science or history textbook, but as a figurative, as a poetic description of God's amazing handiwork in creation. Now, I need to wrap things up, but in closing, I, I want to make a couple applications to two large groups of people represented here today at our four campuses uh, watching online. Okay, if you thought this was just an academic exercise, it's not. You know, I, 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 I'm not teaching this today just to give you a mental buzz. Some of you are saying it's not a buzz, it's like a brain freeze right now. All right. Two basic applications. First group of people I want to address, those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. Here's the application. Don't allow a perceived conflict between the Bible and science to keep you away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, maybe one of the reasons you don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus is because you don't believe what the Bible supposedly says about Genesis 1. And so in your mind, say, uh, science has disproved the Bible's version of creation. But I I've just laid out three interpretations of Genesis 1, two of which resolve much of the conflict between the Bible and science. So you don't have to believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days to become a Christ follower. But I'll tell you what you do need to believe. You need to believe that every bad thing that you've ever thought or said or, or, or done has alienated you from a perfectly holy God. A, a, a God who is totally righteous, totally holy. And you, you need to believe that though you've been alienated from this God, God loves you so much. He didn't want you to stay alienated and so he sent his son to take the penalty for your sins. See, the penalty is death. When you go your way instead of God's way, when you disconnect from the giver of life, the consequence is death. God wants you to experience life. So he sent Jesus to take the death you deserve. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But he was raised from the dead, and he offers you today forgiveness for the sins that alienate you from God. He offers you today brand new life. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous one for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, God wants a restored relationship with you, but you must surrender to Jesus Christ. You must, that's what you've got to believe. You must surrender to Jesus Christ. Second group of people, those of you who are already Christ followers, here's the application. Keep an open mind toward your interpretation of Genesis 1 
and an open heart toward those who hold a different interpretation, even your pastor, okay? In, in, in the interest of self-disclosure, let me say that there was a time when I tenaciously held the 24-hour day interpretation of Genesis 1, and I was certain that anyone who challenged that position was attacking the Bible and undermining the Christian faith. So I understand where some of you are coming from today. If you hold a 24-hour view, you may have been unsettled by the two other interpretations that I taught. I get it. And let me add, unfortunately, unfortunately, the 24-hour day interpretation is the only position that many Christ followers have ever been exposed to, the only position that we're told is true to the Bible. You know, this is the position that is often, not, not always, but it's often defended by Christian homeschool curriculum or by Christian uh, school science classes, by apologetic websites, by radio Bible teachers, even by so-called science uh, museums. And so it's understandable if you're left with the impression that this is the only acceptable position for a Christ follower to hold. But I want to say to you today, it's not. And I'm not telling you not to hold that position. I'm just saying it's not the only position. You know, the other two positions that I, I've described today are held by many evangelical Bible scholars and evangelical scientists who, who, who believe God's word to be uh, inerrant in what it teaches. And I could give you names if you want to go back and check some of these people out. And to be totally, totally open with you, I find myself, I'm going to tell you where I stand, I find myself somewhere between interpretations two and three. Somewhere, somewhere between the day, age, and evolutionary creation camp. And my buddy Clayton, I'm going to out him right here, okay? But he told me I could do this. He would say he's firmly in the evolutionary creation camp. Now, here, here's why I tell you this. It's not to say that that's the official position of Christ Community Church or that you have to hold the position that Clayton or I hold. Not at all. It's just to say if you don't believe that it's possible to hold a position other than the 24-hour day thing, I hope you'll look at Clayton and me and say, here are guys who believe God's word, would never accommodate God's word just for the sake of science. And so maybe these are legitimate positions that people could hold, Christians could hold. One, one last thing to consider. You know, if you hold strongly to the 24-hour day interpretation, especially if you're a mom or a dad, Please be careful of what you teach your kids. If you, if you teach them that this is the only possible interpretation, that the other two interpretations are off limits, yeah. Th then what happens if your child goes into science, as 51% of our kids will end up doing, and somewhere along the, the line, they're faced with this uh, pile of evidence that the Earth is actually 4.5 billion years old, and now they're forced to choose between what they know to be true from their scientific studies and what they've been taught is true about Genesis 1. But see, you see what's at fault here might be their interpretation of Genesis 1, not Genesis 1. And so you don't want your kids walking away from the faith. You don't want them walking away from Scripture. You don't want them walking away from Jesus over this issue. You, you follow what I'm saying here? Studies have been done recently. The Barna polling group has found that almost a third of millennials who leave the church say that it's this conflict between the perceived conflict between science and the Bible that has caused them to give up the Christian faith. 
And I just want to say to you, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not trying to tell you which position to hold. I'm just saying don't hold your own position so tightly that you don't make allowance for the possibility of the other positions being correct. You get it? Good. Now, I'm going to close in a, in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a great hymn about creation and about Jesus being Lord of it all. And then here in St. Charles, I'm going to go to the uh, Welcome Center. Pastor Clayton said he would man up and come back there with me. <laughs> and so you'll, you'll find us with our flak jackets on. And uh, as well as the campus pastors at the other campuses, I'm sure we'll be willing to, uh, to uh, uh, respond to you. You know, but the best uh, feedback we could give you is look at the books we we provided for this series. If you're wondering what what are some more details of that day age and that uh, evolutionary creation position, a, a final book we're recommending is one that we're, we're carrying at resource called Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, and it compares those. those Interpretation two and three, if you want more details about those interpretations. Let me pray for you. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before, you know, don't throw out what the Bible says about Christ. He is the gate for the sheep, not literally, but figuratively. He's the only way to a relationship with God because he's the only way who's done something about your sin that has kept you alienated from God. He's died for you. He's taken sin's penalty. That's good news. If you've never surrendered to him, never asked him for forgiveness, never said, Jesus, I want you to be the savior. I want you to be the king, the ruler of my life. You could do that right now in the quietness of your heart. And God, I pray that as we go from this place today, it would be with the assurance that you are the great and awesome creator, that you've made all that we see from the, the tallest mountain to the smallest microbe that can't even be looked at uh, you know, with the naked eye. And may we wonder, God, at what, what a great and awesome God you are. And may we live to tell the world that this God loves us so much that he's given us his son, Jesus. May, may we be ambassadors for Christ as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.